This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the Internet's leading provider with over 180,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the Renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. This week, I'm recommending Lasari's Lives, read by Neville Jason. How could I not recommend the book by the artist we are covering in this episode? So if you've not already downloaded Vasari's Lives, I recommend this version, read by Jason. Vasari was one of the first modern art historians, and his work provides the only background on many artists of the Renaissance. You may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the Renaissance for your free download. Welcome to the Renaissance, episode 26, Vasari, Art and History. Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Bird. This episode marks the last artist of the Florentine High Renaissance. It's a bit of a milestone. In a sense, Giorgio Vasari has been with us since the very beginning. He is the main primary source I use for the entire podcast. And he's considered by many to be the first modern art historian. Vasari's work, The Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects, is a monumental work that covers every artist of the late Middle Ages through his own time after the death of Michelangelo. Vasari coined the term Renaissance to describe the period beginning in the late 14th century. He was the first scholar to see the distinction between the outlook of the Middle Ages and the resurgence of interest in classical works of Greece and Rome during the Renaissance. Despite his tremendous influence, Vasari is not without fault. His work can sometimes be clouded by personal bias. This is most evident in the case of Michelangelo, his former master. Vasari held an undying admiration for the sculptor, and often he takes Michelangelo's point of view as fact. This means Leonardo, Bramante, and Raphael are often seen in a slightly negative light compared to Michelangelo. Even in the case of Andrea del Sarto, whom Michelangelo respected, Vasari felt he was lacking in work ethic and the artistic genius of Michelangelo. Where the facts were unknown, he was not above inventing parts of a story to fit his narrative. He would accept myth and legend of certain artists without question. This is particularly true for the late Middle Ages and the early Renaissance. And yet, he does quite a bit of investigation and speaks with surviving students of the great masters, and in the case of the late Renaissance artists, speaking with them or their families directly. He sets the stage for the modern art historian and a more methodical and scientific research of art history. 
Often we speak so much of Vasari's writing that we forget he was actually a skilled painter and architect in his own right. A student of and friend of Michelangelo, he also studied painting with Andrea del Sarto. He would go on to paint the inside of the dome of Florence Cathedral, a monumental job, and construct the famous Vasari Corridor. As with del Sarto, Vasari would have a huge impact on the mannerist movement of the late Renaissance, as well as every other art historian that followed in his footsteps. With all of this, let's delve into the life of the artist and art historian, Giorgio Vasari. With some of Vasari's early subjects, we must take his accounts with a grain of salt. With Michelangelo and del Sarto, he personally knew them both, and though tainted with some of his own personal bias, is relatively reliable. Thankfully for us, Vasari included his own autobiography in the last chapter of his book. This gives us an incredible window into his life, though with any autobiography, the writer tends to view their own life favorably, downplaying their faults. Vasari, however, is incredibly candid. Born in Arezzo in 1511, Vasari says he showed artistic inclination at an early age. This was fostered by his father, who then apprenticed him to Guglielmo de Marcellin before he was even a teenager. Taken to Florence in 1524 by Cardinal Passarini of Cortona, he would soon befriend Michelangelo, who would recommend that Vasari train under del Sarto, one of the most adept painters in Florence. Vasari then began his study with Andrea del Sarto and his students, and over the next several years, he would learn the art of fresco and oil. In 1527, the Medici were driven from Florence, and Vasari, through the cardinal, was tied to Ippolito and Alessandro de' Medici. His family decided it would be prudent for Giorgio to return to Arezzo, so he would not be harmed during the ensuing turmoil in the city. Before his arrival, however, Vasari's father died of the plague, and his uncle kept Giorgio away from the city. During this time, he worked in fresco in the countryside surrounding Arezzo. Once the plague subsided in 1528, he returned to Arezzo and was commissioned by the Servite friars to paint a small altarpiece for the Church of San Piero. Vasari would return to Florence in 1529 to apprentice with a master goldsmith, but if you're following along, you remember what happens in 1529, Florence would be under siege, and Vasari would flee just ahead of Charles's army heading to Pisa. Vasari would return once again to Florence once the Medici were restored. With the patronage of the Medici, in particular Duke Cosimo I, Vasari would become the leader of the new Mannerist style. We mentioned Mannerism before in the previous episode on Andrea del Sarto, and it combines elements of Michelangelo, Raphael, and Leonardo, but it was a reaction against the strict classical harmony of the Renaissance. The figures were no longer perfectly balanced, but were often contorted and stretched. In some ways, there was a move back to the ideas of the Middle Ages. Composition, design, and meaning outweighed the importance for accuracy and balance. The style would evolve to the point that the figures seemed to be made of rubber and stretched in unnatural ways. Mannerism was also a reaction to the Council of Trent that set new rules for artists portraying religious subjects. 
No longer were artists to paint writhing nudes in churches as Michelangelo had done. Except in specific instances, the figure was to be draped, and betrayals of Mary and Jesus were never to be nude. This new style would maintain a hold on art until the beginning of the 17th century, when something new and dramatic would take its place, Baroque art. Under the rule of Duke Cosimo I, Florence would see a number of building projects that would rival his namesake, Cosimo de' Medici. He would commission huge renovation projects and building projects all around Florence, including the Palazzo della Sonoria, which we now call the Palazzo Vecchio. The Palazzo Vecchio, or Palazzo della Sonoria, with its large clock tower, has been with us since the beginning as well. Built in 1299, it served as the home of the Sonoria and the palace of the Gonfalinieri. Cosmo de' Medici would be in prison here, as well as Savonarola. After the siege, the Medici were installed permanently as hereditary dukes of Florence. In 1540, Cosimo I would move the Medici residence to the Palazzo della Sonoria. When he would move his residence again to the Pitti Palace, he would change the name of the Palazzo della Sonoria to the Old Palace, or Palazzo Vecchio. While at the Palazzo Vecchio, Cosimo I commissioned Vasari to enlarge the Salone del Cinquecento, the Hall of the Five Hundred, used by Savonarola to house the Grand Council. During this renovation, two important frescoes were lost, Michelangelo's Battle of Cascina and Leonardo's Battle of Anghiari. These were the frescoes commissioned by the Sonoria that pitted the two artists against each other. If you remember from those episodes, neither were finished. Leonardo left after his work failed to adhere to the wall leaving only the cartoon, and Michelangelo was called to Rome for the commission of the Sistine Ceiling. Many historians today believe that one, or maybe both of these paintings still exist, albeit underneath the frescoes of Vasari. There's a legend that Vasari built a false wall over Leonardo's work, but this is yet to be proven. With the enlargement complete, Vasari and his large team of assistants set about painting the hall and its ceiling. The theme for the cycle of paintings was Florence's victories over Pisa and Siena between 1555 and 1572, and he would paint dozens of panels, 39 in the ceiling alone. The walls may represent the victories of the Florentine Republic, but the ceilings depict the victories of Cosimo I. In the center of the ceiling is the apotheosis of Cosimo, Above the raised stage where Cosmo would receive diplomats and the citizens of Florence is a painting of Boniface VII receiving ambassadors. The hall is a marvel and one of the best examples of Florentine mannerism. While completing the Hall of the 500, Cosimo employed Vasari on yet another building project, the Uffizi, literally the offices. These were meant to house the offices of the many bureaucrats of the growing Florentine state under Cosimo I. Built next to the Palazzo Vecchio, it incorporated a long internal courtyard with a matching facade to the Palazzo Vecchio. This long courtyard emphasized perspective. Inside the Uffizi's was the Florentine State Archives. This, along with the Medici's personal art collection, 
which would serve as the basis for the Uffizi Museum's collection today. Vasari envisioned the Uffizi as a repository of the great artists of Florence and encouraged Cosimo to fill it with great works by Michelangelo, Leonardo, and other important Florentine artists. This work would be given to the people of Florence after the line of the Medici was extinguished. Connecting the Palazzo Vecchio and the Uffizi is a narrow corridor filled with artwork, known as the Vasari Corridor. This section contains the Uffizi's portrait collection. Cosimo commissioned Vasari to design the corridor in 1565. If you continue through the Palazzo Vecchio, the corridor crosses the Arno River, following the Ponte Vecchio, and finally you end up in the Pitti Palace, the residence of the Medici. The corridor has long been surrounded by mystery and plays an important role in Dan Brown's book Inferno. The origins, however, are not all that mysterious. Cosimo wished to travel back and forth between his home and the government offices housed in the Palazzo Vecchio and the Uffizi. He couldn't do so along the streets without the risk of being attacked by his enemies or the rabble among the crowd. This corridor allowed him to travel freely and safely, as well as unseen by the public or his opponents. With the amount of work commissioned by Cosimo I, we have failed to mention the remodeling projects of Santa Maria Novella and Santa Croce. It's amazing that Vasari even had time to write his monumental work, The Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects. The book was first published in 1550 and dedicated to none other than Cosimo I. It's regarded as the first work of art history, and it lays the groundwork for future art historians. Vasari writes it in a conversational style that was highly readable and included woodcut portraits of the artist he writes about. Today, it is the work he is most well known for. Vasari's work begins with the late Gothic artist Cimabue and Giotto, both of whom he treats favorably, despite their work not being fashionable during the day. Vasari had a great admiration for these artists, as did his friend and mentor Michelangelo. Through ten volumes, he catalogs each artist of the Renaissance. Initially, the Venetian and Northern painters are absent from his work. Vasari also credited Florence with the invention of the printing press, being ignorant of the developments in Northern Europe. He's sometimes criticized for his focus on Florentine artists, but in later editions he will include some artists from Northern Europe, as well as artists like Titian from Venice. Despite this, and a few instances of personal bias creeping in, Vasari attempts to be neutral and unbiased. Unlike modern art historians, Vasari never went to the archives to research the dates and names. This accounts for some of his errors, and art historians have tried to correct the dates when possible. It was Vasari, though, who coined the term Renaissance and Gothic. His dividing line, starting with Giotto, is still with us today. He referred to the developments of the 14th and 15th centuries as a rebirth after the dark times of the Middle Ages. It's likely few living in the early Renaissance would have distinguished themselves from the late Gothic, but by the time of Cosimo de' Medici, there was a recognition of a new style, yet unnamed. To distinguish the old from the new required another label as well, Gothic. Vasari borrowed this term from the Germanic tribes, who were credited with the fall of Rome. Vasari intended the pejorative nature of this label, 
as he saw the art of the late Middle Ages as backward, barbaric, and Germanic. So out with the old, barbarian, Germanic world, and then with the new, inspired by Greece and Rome. The reality is always much more complicated, and an honest look at late Gothic art, we see the beginnings of realism in both Italy and Northern Europe, particularly in Flanders and the Netherlands. So this transition from Gothic to Renaissance is much more gradual than we imagine. We see attempts at realistic space and a growing sense of realism. The Northern artists were known for their intense realism of portraits as well. If one has to make a clear delineation between Gothic and Renaissance, it's likely Brunelleschi's experiments with perspective. These do mark a huge step forward in portraying naturalistic space. This massive work by Vasari would be re-edited and republished various times during Vasari's life. It would be his lasting legacy, and despite the criticism and flaws, he is the founder of modern art history. Vasari would become the ultimate insider artist. As a result, he was in a position to assist other artists, which he did quite often, and promote and preserve their work. Vasari would remain a close advisor to Cosmo I, and he would enjoy an unusually high standing for an artist and would be elected to the town council of Arezzo, his hometown where he maintained a large estate. His political career would lead him to be elected Gonfalonieri of Arezzo. The Gonfalonieri, as you remember from our earlier episodes on Florence, is essentially the mayor of the town. It's already been well established that Vasari was tremendously influential in the artistic life of Florence, urging Cosmo to create one of the first great art museums and writing the first modern history of art. Vasari is also directly responsible for the world's first academy of art in Florence, the Accademia del Disegno in 1563. There were previous academies organized, one notably in Milan by Leonardo. None of these focused on art education and training. Rather, they were social gatherings for artists. Grand Duke Cosimo and Michelangelo, at the urging of Vasari, founded the Academy with the expressed intent of training future artists, and it's still with us today. In fact, if you've ever seen Michelangelo's colossal statue of David, you have been to the Academy. Only the museum portion is open to the public, but the rest of the Academy still operates as an art school today. The academy model would soon take the place of apprenticing for the training of artists. Under the sponsorship of great nobles such as Cosimo I in Florence, or by the kings of England and France, in the case of the Royal Academies of Paris and London, the academy recruited the most talented and successful artists to teach and be members in these institutions. Through the academy, Training could be concentrated with a handful of master painters, and academies would come to dominate the artistic life of the city, offering exhibitions and lectures. Vasari's Academy would eventually collapse as a formal institution, but Vasari's ideas would be taken up by Federico Zuccari. It was Zuccari who would export Vasari's model to Rome and build a powerful institution that dominated the arts. Zuccari would organize workshops and lectures with well-known masters and help its members attain important commissions. This would lead to the exclusion of artists who were not members of the Academy, a practice we would see continue with the Royal Academy in both Paris and London. 
Being a member did not necessarily guarantee success, but not being selected as a member guaranteed failure. This system would persist until the Impressionists broke with the Academy in the 19th century. Vasari's last major commission would be to paint the inside of the dome of Santa Maria del Fiore. The interior of the dome of Florence Cathedral remained unfinished since Brunelleschi's death in 1446. The original plan called for gold gilding, but these were scrapped and the surface was whitewashed. In 1572, Cosmo would decide the interior of the dome needed to be painted. He commissioned Vasari for the job and requested that the artist paint the Last Judgment. Vasari pulled elements from Dante as well as Michelangelo. The dome is divided into six concentric rings toward the center, which is surrounded by 24 elders of the Apocalypse. Two years into the project, however, Vasari would die, leaving it unfinished. The project was then taken up by Federico Zuccari, the painter from Urbino, who would export Vasari's ideas to Rome. Zuccari's work on the dome is considered one of his greatest works. However, he departed from the techniques of Vasari. Vasari worked in durable bone fresco, while Zuccari preferred secco, which is painted over dry plaster. Zuccari's work is much less durable, and the different styles and artists produced an uneven look to the dome. With Vasari's death in 1574, Florence lost its last great Renaissance master. Though he does not get the publicity of Michelangelo or Leonardo, his stamp is on the city everywhere you look. Almost every major building or church was renovated by Vasari at some point or another. His style would continue to dominate Europe until the emergence of a new style with the arrival of Caravaggio and Bernini at the beginning of the 17th century. He would inspire countless art historians and essentially invented the field of modern art history. And he would leave us with a valuable record of the Renaissance. It was also his influence that gave us the great collection of art the Uffizi and spawned the idea of public art museums. We owe a huge debt to Vasari for his work as an artist, art historian, and art advocate. Join me next time as we step back in time to the beginnings of the Northern Renaissance. We will begin with a look at the Flemish and Dutch artists Robert Campen and Roger van der Weyden and the development of oil paint as an important artistic medium. I'm your host, Dennis Bird, and thank you for listening.